Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. Welcome back to episode 105 of the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. My name is Nick Hill. I'm a real estate investor, a partner at Land Bank Advisors, and lucky enough to be the co-host of this podcast. And I'm here today with... Daniel Foch. Uh, I'm a realtor, real estate broker, I suppose, general economics nerd partner at Land Bank as well, and a host of this podcast. And before we dive into this episode... Just wanted to take a quick pause and thank everyone who came to the podcast meetup that we hosted along with our podfathers at TCI, the Canadian investor, Braden and Simmel. Yeah, that was a, that was an epic night, man. Um, you know, we didn't do a ton of, of advertising for it mentioned on the podcast a couple of times. I know they did as well, but uh, kind of one of the first times we've done it as a, as a podcast network. We had well over 100 people show up in a really cool space downtown with good food, good drinks, amazing networking. And to be honest, I'd be shocked if there weren't some deals getting done in that room that night. For sure. Um, I got a couple. And uh, you you got a couple deals. Well, look at that. You always getting deals. But uh, anyways, today's episode, we've got a special one for you today. Yeah, we do. Um, aren't they all special though? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they they are. Well, I guess then today's just different because we are joined by another guest. And well, I guess we actually joined him. He was gracious enough to host us in a very cool office space in one of his be- beautifully renovated multi-use kind of missing middle type buildings. Yeah, good call. It was it was really cool. He's got he's got an office, three residential units, and it's got a great old Italian cafe with a courtyard covered by vines on the main floor. Makes me want to just sit down and have an espresso. You know what I mean? Dan? Yeah, yeah, I do for sure. Well, maybe not. I drink just drip <laughs> coffee. I'm pretty plain, plain old guy. I can't even say that word you're, properly. You're but triple, triple, right? Yeah, That's four that. by four. <laughs> Um, yeah, it, was a, it is a perfect missing middle asset, really, um, which seems to be what this guy does. Yeah, well, tell me more about this gracious, mysterious gentleman. His name is Human Tabesh, and he's a pretty damn sharp guy. He graduated law school and then spent a decade in banking and corporate finance. His resume boasts the likes of McKenzie Investments and even BlackRock. Never heard of them. But, uh, a couple small companies. Little known companies there. But he'd left all of that to start his own thing eight years ago. And what thing is that? That is a REIT. Let's just get a quick reminder of what a REIT is since you're so obsessed with acronyms. (laughs) I thought you'd never ask. So a REIT, you've heard us talk about them on the show before, Real Estate Investment Trust. It's a company that owns and in most cases operates income producing real estate. So REIT, R-E-I-T, owns many types of real estate, including commercial real estate, offices, apartment buildings, warehouses, hospitals, shopping centers, hotels, and in today's case, small multifamily. The idea and the functionality of a REIT is sort of as a a flow-through vehicle. Um, It's modeled after mutual funds. So REITs pool the capital of numerous investors. This makes it possible for individual investors to earn dividends from real estate investments without having to buy, manage, or finance any of the properties themselves. Now, REITs generate a steady stream of income for their investors, but offer little in the way of capital appreciation. 
and much like the dividend stocks that they are and and most REITs are publicly traded like stocks actually I don't know if it would be most there's probably more private REITs but um, probably more capital or the most capital in REITs is, is in a pu- in the public market so that makes them highly liquid and un- unlike physical real estate investments yeah and unlike most physical real estate investments you can actually invest into Whoman's REIT, which is called Alliance REIT, for as little as twenty thousand dollars. Yeah, and and I think you know this would be an example of a, a REIT that's private. Um, but the, you know, pri- and pri- but private markets are are fascinating, and they you know you tend to see a higher return in the private markets than you would in in the public. You know, you can go see the public markets, um, the the dividend yields. You can just go look them up at any given time um, where the private is a little bit more sophisticated, but you can typically do it, you know, through an RRSP or TFSA once you connect with, you know, one of these companies. Um, And the the part that really struck me is like, you know, the style of building the renovations that they do um, just really, really cool portfolio. It's basically pure missing middle asset class throughout the city of Toronto. So a lot of ground floor retail with two, three, uh, apartments above, you know, we, he took us for a walk around the corner to a project that he's working on, which was going to be a fourplex beside a tenplex. Is that what it was? I think something like that, or fourplex beside him. Some maybe a four, four and a six. Right, I yeah, think. ten units, ten altogether. Yeah. yeah, really, really cool assets. Yeah, no, I mean the the his the, you can tell he he loves history and and architecture and, and style and and that really comes through in in his assets, right? And he even showed us some cool old like architectural drawings and plans around along with some old newspaper clippings that he actually found in the walls of some of his properties. You know, taking down the lath and plaster walls and finding these weird hidden treasures behind them, which he's framed and put up in his office. And yeah, as Dan said, we got to tour some of the the properties. <laughs> the other thing you'll realize is this guy's got geography on point because, you know, a lot of his stuff is is walking distance to one another. Um, you know, and and you can tell which ones are his because his doors are all painted red. Well, I don't know if all of them, but most of them. That's his little signature so we get into all that stuff he tells us about uh how he got started the process of starting a reit how he's got an in-house construction crew and in-house property management um he you know i'm really excited to get into this interview because uh it's i think he provides a lot of great insight totally agree let's get to it where are we right now we are at Davenport and Ossington in Toronto's West End, um, also known as Witchwood, Regal Heights, Corso Italia. Depends. Uh, Corso Italia, you have my attention now. Guys, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Corso Italia is just north of us on St. Clair. This specific area is typically referred to as Witchwood. It's a sought after name or sought after location by any name, I suppose. Um, it's an attractive. I mean, this is this is an area where many Portuguese and Italian immigrants settled in 1940s and 50s, and I think that history is what has given its vibrancy and attractiveness today. Um, really, by the function of the restaurants and bars, and really the culture that those kind of you know immigrants brought into the city yeah. that really lasts today. 
Speaking of attractiveness and restaurants and bars, we're in quite the attractive building that also has a bar slash restaurant in the basement. Can you tell us about the building we're in? And maybe, you know, that's a good segue into telling us a bit more about you and then we can get into what we're doing and why we're talking to you today. Absolutely. It's an interesting story. So I grew up just down the street on Marchmont Road and this building was a one and a half story um, Churrasqueira, which is a Portuguese barbecue shop, um, really stopped operating back in 2006 and kind of had been sitting doormat. It's a beautiful corner store built in 1920s. Had a, it has a tremendous history. It used to be general store, pharmacy, and then Churrasqueira. Um, so we had the opportunity to purchase it back in 2019. And really it was for me important to kind of bring some vibrancy back into this corner of the, you know, the neighborhood. So, um, we added two stories um, to the original building, and we were able to um, build four residential units, maintain the original restaurant and bar downstairs, and we built ourselves a little office on top for now. Yeah, we're sitting in the office. It's it's beautiful, and I've noticed you've got some other stuff in the neighborhood as well. So why don't we talk about you know about you and and about alliance and and why you decided to go the the REIT route. Thank you. I'm happy to give you the long story and please interrupt me as you like because I think, you know, people's uh, experiences are relevant in where they end up. Um, so my name is Human Tabesh. Um, I'm a lawyer by training. I went to law school. I, I practiced law at um, Goodman's LLP um, at the start of my career, which was a great turning, um, really training ground for me. Um, but my career was really has been shaped by never saying no to job opportunities. Um, so after Goodman's, I went to McKinsey Financial, which is a mutual fund asset manufacturer, asset manager, and I was part of the acquisition team for um, for them uh, as part of Power Corp because McKinsey is a subsidiary of the Power Corp. I then got a call from BMO, who asked me to come and help them with the acquisition of Lloyd George Asset Management. So I worked for BMO Global Asset Management, and I moved to BlackRock, and I was helping them with the acquisition of Claymore, etc. And then one day in 2013, I got a call from uh, Mr. Wes Hall, who your listeners may know. He's the gentleman on Dragon's Den, and he's also the founder of Black North in- Initiative. Um, and he has a company called Kingsdale, and he does um, advisory work for the boards and management of um, large public companies and REITs. And um, he asked me to come and be his second in command and help him with the proxy fights and uh, hostile takeover bit. So I spent five years advising REITs and uh, large public companies um, on how to manage their shareholder communications and kind of ward off activist investors, etc. And that's where I really learned about, you know, um, what it takes to be a good asset manager and kind of maintain the confidence of your shareholders. I, um, throughout this time, um, so I started Alliance Street in 2016 while I was still working at Kingsdale. And in 2018, I left my career on Bay Street full time to run Alliance Street um, based on um, really my own experience. Um, when I was articling, I bought my first property just down the street from here, actually. Um, that was an amateurishly divided triplex. I lived upstairs and I became a landlord and a property manager overnight and kind of learned by doing it. Kind of started understanding that asset class. So even though I was in the capital markets throughout my career, every time I had saved um, a couple of bucks, I would invest in residential real estate. So by the time 
I started Alliance. I had four of my own properties and had kind of developed a thesis around this particular asset class. And it's really that thesis that became the investment strategy, investment objective Alliance REIT. Um, and essentially, just to tell you about Alliance, um, we source and gut renovate um, and add on to existing building envelopes of typically dilapidated, underutilized building in the Toronto core, and we turn them into boutique, multi-residential um, apartments um, that are pretty sought after. Um, these are infill properties that are strategically located and in the long term will be zoned or developed into much higher density, um, as we're seeing now. Uh, we started with one property in 2016 and... Thankfully, we have over 26 properties now with um, you know, a couple hundred units under management. Really what sets us apart, and this is important from other landlords and residential REITs, is our dedication to um, our environmental, social, and governance responsibilities. Um, we try to live by the golden rule of do unto others as you'd like to do unto you. Um, and we strive hard to make sure residents love and enjoy their homes and our investors are well-informed of their investment. Um, by focusing on those values, we've been able to provide value growth to our investors of over 12% year over year since our inception in 2016. And, and thankfully, our provi housing provider of choice among our tenants um, and residents who recommend us to their contacts. Um, and that's something, frankly, that uh, if you ask me what I'm most proud of, that that's really the point of pride, is being able to um, provide, you know, um, housing that people really loving enjoy um, to those who want to live in the neighborhoods of their choice. Awesome. Awesome. There's a lot you said in there that I really want to dive in on. Um, I'll, I'll go through a couple of them. I think that, you know, you mentioned a, a little bit about the ESG portion and I feel like middle housing and the missing middle has kind of fallen into this like area that, starting to get sex appeal with bigger funds, with bigger pools of capital. But they also, you know, and you mentioned your experience with BlackRock as an example, right? You see in the States, BlackRock buying housing, single family housing in a lot of cases, but nobody's really done that at scale in Canada, except maybe yourself and a couple of others. But it's not so this huge systemic trend that we're seeing. Is it a trend that you would expect to start happening? Um, like given that we're starting to see middle housing, um, you know, the commoditization of residential housing. Um, do you think that we're going to kind of end up with a, a model similar to the U.S.? This is a few things to unpack there. Um, so what we do is different in single-family housing. Um, I think the challenge with single-family housing and a corporate ownership of single-family housing rental is that there's a view that they are taking housing away from the people who need it because they're able to offer a higher price, and essentially take over limited housing stock that's available in the cities that is now out of reach of you know um, people who would otherwise buy them, first-time home buyers, etc. Um, I think for us that's not what we do. Um, we try to create housing, so we take underutilized properties that are currently, frankly, typically not inhabited. They're never tenanted, and typically they're state sold, etc. And we convert them into multi-unit apartments. Um, so, so that's one aspect. The other is um, those who've tried single-family housing in Canada would tell you um, the, the numbers don't make sense. I think single-family housing works in the Sun Belt in the south of the U.S., where housing prices are typically much cheaper. 
So the de- so the the proportion of rents that you achieve and the price you pay for the house makes sense from a profitability perspective. It is very hard in big cities in Toronto, in Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver to do that. I think um, housing prices are so elevated that if you were to rent them as a single family home, um, you would have to charge exorbitant rent to be able to frankly just make your money back. Um, it, it's a challenge. I mean, there are some folks out there, I will name names, who tried doing that. I'm not quite sure how successful they're at it. And I also know they took a lot of flack from the media and, you know, population in general from that kind of taking away from the housing yeah. stock. And I feel like like the housing market's so uh, almost saturated with the buyer pool, right? I mean, there's the most buyers in that market where you, you get a bit of price dislocation or inefficiency with this multiplex product. Can you talk to us a little bit about, like, I feel like you're one of the few people who have done sort of smaller assets at an institutional scale. Um, so if we could, you know, like, from my perspective, there's very few people as qualified to talk about what makes somebody successful in, in mixed-use multiplexes or in multiplexes. So if you were to just take all of your experience since doing this since 2016 and try and boil it down into, you know, maybe three secrets in investing in, in multiplexes or three rules, what would they be? Good question. Um, I think first and foremost is know your neighborhoods. Um, it's the, it's a derivative of the old adage, location, location, location. Um, we operate in a very um, specific area of the city, and that's because we know that area very well. Um, so I said that was know your neighborhoods. Um, second is um, know your residents. Um, know your demographic. Um, we go above and beyond for our residents with a personal touch. And in return, they treat us well and they recommend us to their contacts. Um, we have a waiting list for our units. So we typically don't oh. advertise our units because we have a waiting list because people um, that know us recommend us. Um, and that helps us both from an ESG perspective because we get residents who are keen to move into our property. But it's also, frankly, from a financial perspective because they're willing to pay the rent because they know that they are treated well and that, you know, we are not a, the stereotypical landlord where we're absent. You know, we have a property management team that's always present, um, that's able to address any issues that come up. And... Um, think knowing your residents is very important yeah i mean to go back to you know the golden rule right you you treat them and they treat you the same way back and you know if you're treating your tenants in in a certain type of way they're going to treat you the landlord as well as the property in that same manner it goes a long way. It really does go a long way, and it's and I and I could appreciate once you know the once you have thousands of thousand units, it's tough to do that. Um, but but for us, it's extremely important to maintain that personal touch and appreciation. Um, it's interesting you say that because one of the things that I tell so we have our own in-house construction crews because we build our own properties. We don't just buy mm-hmm. them and rent them. We actually develop our own properties. One of the things that you could speak to all of our guys that they tell you, I tell them, is like, I wouldn't want to rent it unless I would live in it myself, right? When you're developing rental, it's easy to take shortcuts. It's easy to say, well, you know, it's just a rental and, you know, well, let's let's leave that behind the wall, etc. Um, but our guys all know it's like, we built it as if I would live in it myself. And I think that also goes a long way in attracting the type of residents that we, we try to attract. Um, the third I guess, golden rule, um, then I think is focused on the numbers. 
um, you know, we're very data driven um, and be very conservative in our projections and, you know, on our um, and, and the budget that we, that we develop for each property. We wouldn't proceed with an acquisition unless we know we're going to hit above 5% cap rate upon finishing that property. Um, I think, you know, what I would recommend to potential investors is um, don't fall in love with a property if the numbers don't work. Um, if the numbers work, then it works. But, you know, don't fall in love. Yeah, I love that. So so just to recap, know the lo- know the location or location, location, location. Know the tenants. So know your clients and know the numbers. Pretty standard, right? So, um, you know, a lot of our listeners have, you know, they, they never think about the first property or the second one. They think about, you know, when I have 30 properties or whatever, and they have these lofty goals. Um, you know, I, I want to talk about the position you're in now versus when you started. So you said you started with one property. It's great. How did that one property turn into a re and maybe go into some of the nuances of, of running a, a smaller REIT because our audience knows what a REIT is. It's a real estate investment trust, but they're probably thinking, you know, traded on the stock market, massive owned by, you know, the likes of BlackRock, one of your former employers. Walk us through that, that journey from one to, to many and that journey from turning those many into a REIT. I think you have to start with a dream and a vision. Um, and that, and that's when I, you know, when I left my career, that was my dream and a vision. I had, certain understanding of the asset class and a certain cred- had built certain credibility and trust among my friends and contacts who were my initial investors. Um, and the logic behind the read really was to solve the problem that I had, was that I wanted to deploy my RSP money into real estate. And unless you're investing in a public stock or REIT, you can't do that. You can't deploy your own RSP or any, you can't deploy RSP or invest RSP in direct investment. Um, so the idea of the REIT was really to solve for that issue uh, of being able to deploy register plan money into into real estate from me personally. Um, so that was really the genesis of it. Um, there are certain benefits to a REIT and there are certain drawbacks. The benefits from a tax perspective, um, the REIT only gets taxed once. So, so long as the REIT distributes all its income to the investors, unit holders, at the end of the year, it only gets taxed once in the hand of the unit holders. On the flip side, REIT also has certain um, startup costs and also certain structural costs, mm-hmm. you know, from a governance perspective. Um, so we, our cost structure is very similar to a public REIT, even though we're much smaller. Um, we're on FundServe, even though we're not on TSX, we're on FundServe, people could kind of purchase on FundServe, advisors, etc. cetera. Um, so those are the costs that go with the structure. Um, but the advantage is that, you know, you'll be able to access registered plan um, capital. Um, but if you were a closed-end fund, we would not be able to do that. What At what point is it worthwhile or what point should someone start to even consider turning their portfolio into a read? Is that something that, okay, now, you know, over the last several years, I've accumulated 20 properties can I just stab my fingers and turn it into a read? Or is that you said, you know, it starts with a vision. You had that vision from day one to I want to start a read. Walk us through what it looks like actually turning something into a read and, and when it becomes worthwhile for some people with the larger portfolios. I think I would keep it simple. You could have a read with one property. Um, but the key is from a financial perspective is you want to start a read when you know your income from your properties are able to absorb the additional cost of that structure. Um, 
And, you know, it also, it, it just depends for different folks. If you own all of your properties yourself, there probably are better structures um, than a REIT for you from a tax perspective. I think a REIT enables you to attract outside capital, um, you know, in an efficient manner from a tax perspective. So if you're looking to attract outside capital, uh, particularly retail capital, read is beneficial, but you also have to have scale to be able to absorb the costs. Of and I guess it, the difference between doing it REIT versus like a GPLP structure that a lot of our investors do on a sort of deal by deal basis for direct investing is that I guess it's more discretionary. Like you pool the capital and you have the ability to allocate it as you see fit. Absolutely. I think with a read, you got to look at it as a more of an investment fund. Um, you're investing in a thesis, in an idea, in a portfolio, not in a specific property. And I think there's a certain trust that has to go into that management from a, you know, really asset management perspective. In a specific LPGP, there's a specific property. There's a specific, you know, building or there's a specific project that you're going into. You know about that project. I think when you go into, when you invest in a read, you're investing in an idea. Investing in an idea and a, and a strategy and a portfolio and really on, the, on a team that's executing on that strategy. For sure. And so I guess, you know, compounding that, what would be for you as an owner, and then we'll get to what it would be for an investor, but for you as an owner, what are the, the benefits of being a REIT versus doing GPLP? And then what would be the drawbacks if there are any? It's interesting. I think, you know, I think the, uh, the question is if, if I had to go back, would I start a read? Um, I'm not sure. I, I, I don't know if I would call it a read, but there's a certain, when people hear the name read, they just have been trained to think income and distribution because, you know, people buy REITs for the income that it provides. Yeah, I feel like it's as well recognized in the dividend community. Like actually, so our, we call them our pod fathers, but our, our, the podcast that, that is the head of our network, the Canadian investor podcast, they talk a lot about REITs on the show and, you know, it's like your, your ally, your Rio can, et cetera. And a lot of those have just been akin to dividend investing. That's, that's why typically, um, particularly the older folks retired the investor REITs because of that dividend distribution. So the name REIT, it really very much associated with the distribution that it provides. Um, not with the growth in value, right? Yeah, yeah. And often, in fact, REITs, you know, back when I was at Kingsdale, REITs were target of many activist investors because typically they trade below their intrinsic asset value. So you have these activist investors who want to go take them over because the building's worth more than it's, you know, trading on the exchange, but it's, you know, it's providing a distribution. So that's what people hold it. Um, in our case, a little bit different. Um, you know, we do provide a distribution. We are income positive, but really the true story is the value growth of the asset class, right? Um, so we've been able to grow in value for 12% year over year because we build our own properties. We buy properties in gentrifying areas that, you know, kind of appreciate the value go out, right? Um, but that's kind of when you call something a read and just this is our own personal story that gets lost. So if I had to go back, I may have called it Alliance Growth Fund. Not a lot of Because when people hear REIT, the first question is, so what's a distribution? And you have to kind of change the answer. Well, there's a 2% distribution, but really it's the value growth up 12%, 30% year over year. Yeah. And by the way, it's liquid. You could sell it any time, you know, and kind of, you know, take, the, take home your capital gains, which are, you know, um, uh, better treated from a tax perspective. Um, but that's always the first uh, question. How much it's never, uh, never too late to change it to Alliance Blockchain, apparently, according to a lot of these tech, these companies. <laughs> what is it? It was a gaming company that changed it to, was it Riot Blockchain? Is that what it was? It's, it's interesting. 
interesting because we are getting, I mean, we get a lot of um, solicitation and blockchain and kind of, you know, often blockchain is one of them. And yeah. it's something that I'm learning and studying. But, you know, one of the things that attract me to real estate is because, you know, it's, it's the second oldest profession, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. and it's, uh, you know, and, and it's tried and true. And, you know, it's a real asset. It's yeah. a real asset that you feel, kick and touch and rent. Um, so I, I'd have to learn a lot more about blockchain before yeah. we start going. Yeah, no, it's, it is, it's funny. It's a very predictable input and output business. And I think people try and make it this innovative, complicated thing lately and, and turn it into a science. But if you just boil it down to the simple nuts and bolts, it's usually pretty, pretty simple to do a good job at. You know, I, I like, I like history and, you know, I read a lot of real estate, you know, kind of real estate titans, you want to call them, whoever, like operators, right? And, and these are very nondescript guys. I mean, these are the guys going to really build portfolios. Zeckendorf and Sam Zell and, and those type of guys. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, these are the guys who like dressed like like the guy that worked on the corner, you know, the you yeah. know, corner yeah. of the street yeah. and they spent their coin laundry money in the back because that's all they had. Yeah. They were just building a portfolio, right? Um, and one thing that seems to be the common denominator in terms of their recommendation is real estate is local. You got to know the neighborhood and you got to know the building and you got to be hands on. That's the only way. And you got to work. It's an active investment. It's not a passive investor as an operator. Can I get that on record, please? Real estate is not passive for the 500th time on yeah. the show. Yeah. As long as, well, you can invest in REITs and, and at, at that point yeah. it's very passive. Yes. Yes. Actually, and so on that note, you know, why, because we talked about, you know, the benefits and drawbacks as an individual, but um, why would somebody who's an investor want to put their money into a REIT rather than direct investing in real estate? You know, beyond what we just discussed, that it's not passive income. Um, I think, listen, get to know the management company, right? Obviously, get to know who the, because that management company is, you know, really going to be driving the strategy. But why does it make sense um, for a REIT? A fewfold. One is, um, you get the income and the value growth without having to be the one on the road, you know, making sure the smoke detector is, you know, working and making sure the toilet's working and, you know, dealing with the property management, et cetera. And you also get diversification up to a portfolio versus one individual property, which is important from an investment perspective. You know, our team, like we have a three member portfolio, man um, property management team that's on the road 24 hours. And we don't make money off property management. It's a bit of a loss leader for us, but it provides us with control over each of the properties and really tenant management. Um, that's very important to us. Um, you know, that, that's something that you benefit from, that professional management and diversification. Um, and also, frankly, to be able to um, deploy your register plan, like RSB um, and TFSA, into it for as little as 20000 instead of having to come up with a quarter million dollar down payment. And buy a portfolio, and that money is pretty much, you know, sunk for a while. And you can't really, you know, at the end of the day, properties are not liquid. You know, it's not as easy to sell a property, no matter how great of a market. And sometimes you get into a market like this, it makes it more difficult. Um, but in REIT, it's something that you could sell. You know, you could, you know, you could, in our case, um, you could put a redemption request, and, you know, within two weeks, you get your money back. Um, so I think these are one of the advantages of, you know, passive investment, getting exposure to the same asset class. Um, I'll give you an example. We have a lot of young folks um, who want to invest. Um, and so long as they're eligible, accredited, we, you know, we're able to onboard them. And the reason they're investing is because they feel that the, whatever money they have saved up is not growing 
proportionally to the value of real estate because they eventually want to buy a property, right? Um, so invest in the REITs so that the value of their investment grows proportionally to the Toronto real estate market. And when they're ready to buy their property, that's when they redeem their capital and are able to go buy. So we had a few investors that that's their investment objective. Yeah, very cool. I, I want to know more about the, the, the process of actually turning into a REIT. So can, can you walk us through, through that? So, I mean, this is not legal advice, so by all means, yeah, I'm just course, I, no, speak, speak, to, disclaimers. speak yeah. to your you know, <laughs> lawyers and tax accountants. Um, but um, it, it's really a, a legal structure. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have corporations and you have trusts and they have um, different features. And a trust, whereas a corporation is governed by, you know, um, articles of incorporation, the trust has a declaration of trust um, that is signed by the trustees. Um, so we have a board of trustees, um, seven member, distinguished member of trustees who kind of are our board of directors and we're governed by a declaration of trust, which is our constitution, which essentially tells us how we do things. So all of our investors get a copy of that trust and are able to kind of know that this is the strategy and we can deviate from that. Um, and as a result, as part of being a trust, we're also from a tax perspective, there are certain advantages, one of which is that, you know, we could be a flow through vehicle that as so long as we distribute all of our income at the end of the year, it gets that income gets taxed once in the hand of our investors, not at a corporation level or the trust level. Um, so I don't know the cost. I mean, the costs are substantive, but essentially it's a lawyer's time that has experience to be able to draw up the documents and be able to create that trust, which then holds the portfolio of properties. Um, so it is not difficult per se. I think I would just get tax advice in terms of does it make sense um, for an individual to be able to throw it into a read. Awesome. Um, in regards to policy changes i mean i think right now we've seen the probably the most conversation that we're seeing at a political level around housing and every like the past several elections at a municipal provincial and federal level we're all run on housing housing crisis this housing crisis that how do you feel about progress that's being made in the political environment and and specifically in the product type that you own and build and operate, which is, I think, very much middle housing and, and missing middle. Um, and do you think that the the policy changes that we're seeing, like one of the things we talk about on the show a lot is, you know, we want our listeners to buy, do what you're doing, right? Buy buildings, add units. We think that's the greatest way to drive value and the greatest way to create cash flow. Do you think that, that these changes are going to have a meaningful impact on, on the housing crisis? Do you think they're going to create a lot of opportunity for investors? Like, what does that all of that policy change mean to you that we're seeing right now? I hope so. I mean, I, I really hope so. Um, I'm really excited about the new bylaw, which allows up to four units in any residential lots in Toronto. Um, what I hope is that um, um, the bureaucracy is just as nimble and is able to kind of really implement that policy that policy intent. Um, and um, I also hope the city will continue the initiative by allowing four to six story walk-up apartments in minor and major artery roads, which they've indicated they may or may not. Because, I mean, listen, for a long time, in the city of Toronto, the only options were a very expensive newly built condo, which is essentially a white box in the sky, depending on where it is and what it is, or a very old, uh, often non-renovated uh, apartment block building, right? Um, so I think 
in any cosmopolitan city, you need that choice. Um, I'll give you an example. I mean, one of the benefits that I come from. So I, I grew up at a benefit of like I'm an immigrant. I came to Canada when I was only 15. Um, I grew up in many different cities. I, I was born in Tehran, Iran. Um, I lived in Istanbul, lived in Rome before coming here. Family in New York. Um, so a lot of cities that are older than Toronto, right? Um, and you know, nowhere in the world you have a city as cosmopolitan as Toronto in the same caliber as a Toronto where you have a 20 by 120, you know, with white picket fence, front yard and backyard, two-story detached home, five minutes to the core of the city. Right. This doesn't exist, yeah. you know. At best, you have four or five-story kind of walk-up apartments, right? Um, so I think we live in an exciting times in a city, and I think politicians are frankly are just... The politicians suffer from short terms. Like, that's the problem, right? Like, I think... It's all about the next election cycle, but I think that's changing a little bit because they're realizing the dire need. I mean, look at the population growth and look at the housing. I mean, there's just such disparity. Um, so my hope and expectation is that, you know, the city will allow more diverse type of housing just like they have, um, you know, with respect to the fourplexes, um, because I think we have a lot of potential. Yeah. Yeah. That disparity that you mentioned, I put out a chart on it um, a couple of days ago, but like based on the calculation. So Mike Moffitt, who's at uh, University of Western Ontario, does a lot of research on immigration and, and housing creation. He put a chart out and then I just basically took it and assumed that Ontario's population growth, which was like 500,000, as if they all fell into the standard household size, which is 2.6 in Ontario. Uh, we would have had a demand of like 200 or 190,000 households and we built 70,000, was it? Yeah, 70,000. So we have a shortfall of 120,000 houses or households, units in Ontario per year, right? Making that assumption. Not saying this to tell you what a nice guy I am, but one of my, chal- one of my biggest challenges is um, when we rent a new apartment, so we, you know, typically we have a wait list, um, Sometime, you know, uh, depending on the situation, we put on a market. And you'd be surprised as to the number of applications we receive and the stories we hear. For us, we have a very specific policy. If the application is proof, whichever arrived at our Dropbox first is the one that gets it, right? And it, you know, some of the stories I hear from these potential applicants are, it's terrible and it's really speaks to the lack of housing where there are auctions and people yeah. have yeah. to do uh, what I think are inappropriate things, you know, just to, you know, like have to offer a year up front, having in to, cash. you know, <laughs> $30,000 uh, to live in 700 square feet cash. It's, it doesn't make sense, right? No, I mean, and I, and I think that really, is as a result of, you know, um, lack of a coherent policy regarding housing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of our listeners are, are probably not going to turn their portfolios into REITs, but I still think there's a ton they can learn from you and, and just the best practices and, and how you, you know, go back to those three golden rules, picking the neighborhood, picking your tenants. Um, what are some of the maybe micro and macro trends that you look at to you know make the informed decisions that you're making that that would be that, that would be a good takeaway for for other people in other markets maybe not in toronto maybe secondary tertiary stuff maybe they don't have the same resources that you do but they can still you know follow your guidance 
Great question. And I think you hit it right. It's, the REIT structure is irrelevant. At the end of the day, we are housing providers, mm-hmm. um, landlords. Um, it's a privileged position, frankly, um, you know, having the ability to own a property. Um, so obviously, interest rate environment is a key factor in the short term uh, for obvious reasons. Um, in the long term, as we we're just discussing, supply and demand remain the fundamental elements of the story. Um, we all know where that's headed. Um, in terms of trend, um, what I see um, in the new generation, it's that whether by choice or by force, is relatively less concerned with home ownership um, and uh, is more interested in life experiences and being more mobile and happy renting. I think as housing providers, you know, that's something that we need to understand and be able to cater to it. Um, so for us, it's important to build a brand. So wherever our residents move, if they recognize our brand, you know, that's where they want to kind of be um, or that's who they want to rent from. Um, just, you know, just really from a service perspective, from the finish perspective. Um, so I think those are the things as as moving the future um, we need to keep in mind. Um, at the end of the day, people always need a place to live. Um, so it's not an industry that is going to rapidly change. Um, but I think people's preferences, you know, changes. And I think if, if as a, like any other industry, if you know your clients, you know, and able to cater to their needs, I think you'll be, you know, relatively more successful. Yeah, my, I love that. I, and Dan, you actually had sent me this podcast, The Economist, where they were talking about inflation and, and it's something sprung out there to me and I can relate it to this, that nothing in real estate really happens fast, right? Inflation, you know, it's not like inflation's over tomorrow and we go back to normal. You know, real estate prices historically, yes, they go up, they go down, but it's, it's slow, right? So, um, I really, I really like that. And, and I think you're right. I think the, the needs and wants, especially of, of maybe young people in maybe especially the, you know, the tier one cities across the country have changed, right? There's a lot more people that are happy to rent and have that, and have that freedom of mobility and a bit more cash in their pocket. But a lot of those people still want to invest in real estate. And I think it's great that you are able to provide a vehicle for them to do so well, still, still living that, you know, a bit more nomadic lifestyle, renting, et cetera. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things, uh, you know, that I think, you know, I made clear to our board and to people who work with us is that renting is not a lesser form than ownership. I think it's a choice. From my perspective, it's a choice. And that's how we see it. Um, so we don't view renters as any, you know, I mean, any less rights or less privileges. Um and having to live in a, in, a, in a building that should not have the same finishes and same amenities as, as someone who owns a property. I mean, if anything, you could argue that they, they might even have more rights because they are the client of the landlord. Absolutely. Right? So the landlord actually has more responsibility to, to ensure that their clients are being taken care of. Absolutely. Whereas if you just own your own property, you're, you know, you got to cut the grass, you got to fix the toilet, all that good stuff, right? The smoke alarms and all that. Absolutely. I mean, I think they, the end of the day they pay for service yeah right and i think as housing providers it's our job to provide that service and i think for us that's you know it's a golden rule and you know it is paramount in our operation from our development team 
to our back office, investment team, or property management team. I think that's the key. Um, and I think so long as folks continue doing that, and you know, Rome wasn't built in a day. Um, for us, you know, they say, and I keep reading this, how change is, um, growth is elusive in the beginning. Then it comes very slowly. And then all of a sudden, it's there and it's really fast. Yeah, the over- right? overnight success in 10 years. Right? It's, yeah. it's, I think... The, um, it's a Hemingway quote about bankruptcy too, isn't it? He says, oh, how'd you go bankrupt? He says, oh, well, gradually and then all at once. Or two, yeah. two ways. <laughs> yeah. Gradually. Yeah, yes. Right, and it's true. It's really consistency. It's really consistency and discipline. For us, you know, we grew three by three, um, three units at a time, one property at a time that had three, typically three units. And I know it used to be that we did one property at a time and it just happens without noticing. Next thing you know, now we're doing four or five properties at a time, you know, 10, 20 units at a time. Amazing. Um, and you look back and for us, and I feel privileged and lucky had you asked me six years ago when I first started REIT, if I'd be here today, I'd be like, from your mouth to God's ears. I oh, <laughs> I wish, right? So you got to have the vision. You know, what's that baseball, you know, um, uh, saying? You built it and they will come. So if you have the vision and dedication, the love, you got to love what you do. Um, I love what I do. I do my best time. You know, I love my family, but I'm happy Monday mornings when I come to work. Um <laughs> Because, you know, and I share this because I think for me, it's the personal growth story is, you know, I, I was very successful, you know, being in the capital markets on Bay Street. Um, and I love and learn from everyone that I worked with and for. But at the end of the day, from a personal fulfillment, I was making an extra million for a billion company um, or I was helping a billion company um, cog in a machine. It wasn't giving me that personal fulfillment. Um, the best part of my week is when I do the showings and a new applicant walks into the apartment and the jaw drops because they just love it. And it's like, they can't believe what an amazing apartment is. That gives me the utmost satisfaction. That gets me to go to sleep at night. Um, cause I believe I'm contributing, um, sounds, but you know, that's what's important. Yeah. I mean like, well, the capital markets exist to put a giant, like monolithic, complicated legal structure between capital and the end user customer people right? like the tenant yeah and the, and the money that's investing in in it whereas this is very much more intimate like it's a it's a service business yeah, yeah absolutely um last question um you know, you're obviously very accomplished in, in real estate investing especially in the city of toronto um if you were to, to summarize it what would you say is the biggest opportunity in in real estate investing right now other than investing in Alliance Read, of course. I again do do your due diligence on a management company, and you know, um, and ask our investors first. Um, it's real estate is cyclical. Um, typically, I think you know I'm too young and you're too young, but I think we just need to read history and kind of see how that cycles work. The um, typically have a long bull market, for lack of a better word, and a very short bear market. Um, in real estate anyway, um, at least in North America to date. Um, I think um, there's tremendous buying opportunity right now if you have cash and you don't have to rely on leverage. Um, we haven't seen values like this since 2018, frankly. Um, and whereas before we had to do a lot more sweat equity, we had to add on to the building um, and do a lot of extra work to be able to achieve a 5% cap rate. We're finding that, you know, the values that we're finding um, in the market are able to support five and above cap rate. Um, 
And, you know, sometimes you have to be contrarian. You know, when everybody's selling, you got to be the one buying. But obviously, um, I'll say that, but I'll also leave you with last thought. There's two downfalls in real estate. Only two. Um, the first one may not apply. It may. Um, it's political risk. The crown or the king or the government could come and say, well, you don't own this anymore. Right? So that's that's number one. The second, more applicable, is too much debt. I think, you know, in the last few years, um, people, you know, when you have 2% in commercial, it's, it's easy to go and lever up and buy, buy, buy. Um, and you don't think of time where now all of a sudden you have to pay 8%. And I think that's one thing we try to make sure in the beginning, we kept leverage very low. We kept it at 47% throughout to this day. Um, and that has bode well for us. Um, you know, losing sleep, you're still cash flow positive, which is more than I could say for some of my good friends um, who will survive because um, they can. Um, but I think that's a risk I would tell folks. It's um, leverage is great, but this, you know, can't have too much of a good thing sometimes. Yeah, I mean, surviving alone is all, not all, also something everybody wakes up and says, you know, that's what I want to do today. Most people say I want to have a good day or, you know, enjoy life a little bit, not just survive. So, it's, it's, yeah. it's a stressful environment for folks who um, bought based on the cap rates of, you know, two years ago and leverage of two years ago um, and now are faced with higher interest rates and frankly less turnover because of you know rents have been climbing tremendously and as a result there's not much turnover and you know sometimes when you get into a value add proposition you depend on turnovers um so i think there's a lot of opportunities out there for folks who have the cash um and um this is frankly would be the time to buy um, if anybody wants to learn more about your company or potentially invest, where would they find you? Um, go on our website, www.alliancereit.com. Um, reach out to me directly. Um, just Google my name, Human Tabesh. I'm on LinkedIn. Um, all my investors have my cell phone. Amazing. Um, you know, one thing I learned, I'll say this. I mean, I'm older than you guys, so I hope you don't mind me giving it. Because this is what, frankly, I think contributed to my relative ability to succeed is when you play with other people's money remember that it's other people's money um we owe a fiduciary duty to them so for us it's important to provide um monthly updates so i send a newsletter every two months at least you know letting our investors know the good the bad and ugly because so long as they're informed then they're informed i think that's very important to us um and you know for for us it's important to remember if it wasn't for investors, we wouldn't be here today. I think so long as any asset manager remembers that and is driven by it, I think they'll be successful. Amazing. Love that. Yeah, I think that's a good place to call it. Thanks so much, man. Thank you, guys. This was amazing. Thank you. The Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast is for entertainment purposes only, and it is not financial advice. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center and a partner in the G&H Mortgage Group. License number 10317, agent license M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker licensed with Rare Real Estate, a member of the Canadian Real Estate.